Hey, um, it is so good to be with you. Um, I'm, I'm just thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you. I come often. You may or may not have seen me. A lot of times I'll stand in like the sound booth in the back because there was a day when I was a young adult and I am not now. And uh, in fact, my daughter comes to this and occasionally we ride together and she's like, wear your staff name badge, would you? So it doesn't look like you're like a hover parent. And, uh, and so uh, I am just thrilled to be here. Um, hey, have you ever gone through a big change in your life? Something like dramatic, uh, it might be a career change or um, maybe you changed the color of your hair or maybe you went from uh, goth in high school to preppy in college or something big where people looked at you and were like, you're different now, aren't you? If, if you knew me like three years ago and then fast forwarded today, you hadn't seen me in three years, you would um, be shocked at the difference in my appearance. I look very different than I did three years ago. In fact, if you're on Facebook, feel free to fend me or just cyber stalk me and you can check it out. It's true. In, the, in the, a, a very short window, in about a six to seven month window, I, uh, I had a massive weight loss. I lost 65 pounds in the course of about a six to seven month window. And it all started because I went into my doctor and he poked me and he said, dude, you need to lose some weight. You are type two diabetic, which means I'm gonna put you on a pill and you gotta back off the carbs. And so I ate like a little less carbs and a few less M&Ms and all of a sudden, like I lose five pounds and then 10 pounds, and then another five pounds, and a month goes by and I've lost 15 pounds, and another month goes by and I lost 10 pounds. And I figured it out, I was like, I am on the slightly lower carb M&M diet. I don't know what I'm doing, but I can do no wrong. I shed pounds and I think, man, I'm gonna be on Oprah Winfrey, I'm gonna be on Dr. Phil, I'm gonna write the next best weight loss book. And uh, my wife, who's a nurse, as the weight just kept coming off, she just started to kind of give me like the look of suspicion, like what is going on? This is not because you're eating a few less M&Ms every night. There is something else going on. I want you to see a different doctor. So I go into the other doctor. Now we're talking June of the year, 2016. And by that point, I, have, I look pretty much like I look now. I have lost 65 pounds. I feel fabulous. I'm, I'm ready to... Um, to uh, uh, write the bestseller, and the doctor says to me, um, let me just run down some symptom questions for you, because that does seem kind of peculiar. You haven't, like, tr you're not training for a marathon. No, I am not. You haven't moved to an all-protein diet. No, I have definitely not. And so he starts asking, like, questions. And uh, you ever seen the TV show House? You ever see that? It's like rerun land. Uh, my doctor looked just like Greg House and had the bedside charm of Greg House, if you've ever seen the show. And so here I am in the doctor's office, and he starts asking these questions. And I go, yep, yep, yep. And then he, he does this like very dramatic. He must have taken theater lessons in um, medical school. He crosses his arms. He closes his eyes. He tilts his head up to the ceiling. He says, my man, you do not have type 2 diabetes. And I thought, well, that's good. I don't like coming into second place for things. He said, you have type 1 diabetes. Your pancreas has gone on strike. It's shutting down right now. You have late onset type 1 diabetes. You are insulin dependent. You will be giving your shot, yourself shots and testing your blood from here until you meet your maker. And I, I was a little stunned. I was waiting for him to go, I was just kidding. Actually, you got something going on real good there. 
and he calls the nurse to bring in uh, an, a, a, a little a pen that has insulin in it, and then he proceeds to show me how, how I'm to give myself shots. And I'm trying to let this stuff absorb into like my consciousness, and I, I, I didn't believe it, and the doctor said, look, we're going to run the tests on you, but if you don't have type 1 diabetes, I will eat my shoes. So we're going to run the tests, and here's how you give yourself uh, injections, and where's your pharmacy, because i got to call this in, because if you don't start taking insulin, you will die. Not very charming. He could have sugarcoated that a little. Well, not sugarcoated it because I was diabetic and that would have been kind of dangerous, I suppose. But he could have been a little nicer about it. But in that instance, my life changed dramatically. And I realized I have a choice. One choice is just continue on the old me pattern of life, eat whatever I want to eat, and die a premature death. The other side of me involves needles. So I thought, I don't know, hot fudge Sunday. I've lived a full life. Maybe I should just go out in a storm. He died doing something he loved, eating cake and ice cream, right? But I realized I have a family to raise. I love my wife. I want to be here a long time. I'd like to actually see my children get married someday, maybe have kids, have grandkids. You know, this would be a good thing. I don't want to see my life end prematurely. And so I made a decision in that doctor's office. The old me would stay in the office, and the new me would come out of the office. From henceforth and forevermore, I would be thoughtful about everything that I eat. I would look and study menus. Before I go to restaurants, I'd have to do research on how much carbs. I know this sounds terrible, right? I'd have to decide how many carbs were in something, so much insulin that I had to take so that I took just enough insulin because if I took too much, then I would crash and go into a different coma. See, if you go too low, you're in trouble. If you go too high, you're in trouble. So you have to hit it just right. You become a chemist in your own life. And it may sound terrible, and I know there, it's kind of not great, but there are worse things in the world. And so I came to peace with it. And this might shock you. Being a pastor I tend to spiritualize things. And so I realized the way that I could conceptualize this is there is an old me and there is a new me, a very deeply biblical concept. There is an old Bill and there is a new Bill. Old Bill could eat whatever he wanted, but if I live like old Bill, old Bill will kill me. He will shorten my life and murder me. But there's new Bill. If I'm conscious of the choices that are actually good for me, healthy for me, I could plan to have a pretty normal life and a good life at that. And this is actually like a theme you see in the Bible. You see this all over the New Testament. There's an old person, there's a new person. There's a sin nature. There's a nature dedicated to Christ. There is a, a way that the old person living in rebellion would live, and there is a way that the person who loves God should live. And in, in th uh, 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 coming all the way through me, I realized this, this opportunity I had to live a new, kind of a new kind of life. And tonight we're talking about developing a Christian worldview. And that is a big ethereal concept, that whole idea of worldview. It's philosophical, it's theological, but I want it to be as concrete as possible. I want us to think of the worldview not in terms of philosophical, but in terms of the practical side of how we live our life. And the practical side of how we live our life means that when we look at a worldview, it means that there is an, 
a way of looking at the world that is unhealthy and unhelpful, and there is a way of looking at the world that is very helpful. And we're going to look in a book in the New Testament, the book of Romans. And so if you have a, a Bible app or a Bible with you, I'd invite you to find Romans 6. We're going to spend a lot of time in Romans 6. But as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of the context that the letter of Romans was written in. See, there's Apostle Paul. He's the early church leader, and he writes to Christians living in Rome. And Rome at that time was experiencing what's known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But it wasn't peace like we think of peace. When we think of peace, we think of the absence of war, the absence of strife, the absence of violence. But the peace of Rome was filled with war and it was filled with violence. On the fringes of the Roman Empire, there was constant battles, there was constant war, there was constant bloodshed. And in the center of the kingdom, there was intimidation and there was imprisonment, there was crucifixion because the way that the Romans maintained peace was through, through physical threat. And so in the era historically that is known as the peace of Rome or the Pax Romana, the, the era in which Christianity took off and began to thrive. Things were not peaceful, things were tense. And I think that's important for us living in modern times to get through our heads, to understand that God does some of his most beautiful, his most remarkable, his most redeeming work during times that are turbulent and difficult. Anybody think the current era we live in is kind of turbulent politically? Anybody get the sense that right now there's a lot of peace in uh, the world or in Washington, D.C., that people are getting along? And that was the era in which Christianity began to lift and began to spread and began to move. There's an emperor, his name is Nero, and he's the leader of the Roman Empire at the time in which Paul writes this letter to Christians living in Rome. And Nero becomes the emperor because Claudius' wife poisons Claudius, who's the emperor, poisons Claudius, and then Nero ascends to the throne. You see, the way that you got ahead in the Roman Empire was taking out the person in front of you. And here is the context, the Roman Empire, full of violence, full of intimidation, Christianity is growing, and the Christian movement is beginning to take root, and it's in this environment that Paul writes a beautiful letter. In fact, if you've never read the entirety of the book of Romans, it may sound intimidating, it's not, it's 16 chapters, in about an hour and a half in one setting, you could sit down from chapter 1 to chapter 16 and consume the whole thing in one setting eat it up and enjoy it. And I would encourage you to do that. And in Romans, Paul unpacks this idea of what difference does Jesus make in your life? And in that one letter to Christians living in Rome, he gives us a picture of what difference it makes when Jesus enters a life. In fact, um, if we wanted to just uh, sort of establish a benchmark of the difference that Christ makes in a life, we could follow what is traditionally sometimes called the Romans road. Not a literal road like the Apian Way, but a section and segmenting of Scripture throughout Romans that give us a very crystal clear picture of what does it mean to accept Christ in your life. In fact, I'd like to start there to establish sort of a foundation, and then we're going to get into Romans 6 in detail. See, the Romans road starts with Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means even my sweet old grandma, my mom's mom, was a sinner and she fell short of God's glory. 
And before you become righteous about your grandmother's condition, Romans 3.10 says there's no one righteous, not even one, not even your sweet old Mima. She wasn't that good. She might have been good. She wasn't quite good enough. And then Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And here's the problem. Sin is like a disease that gets passed on from one generation to the other. Even when you are born into the world, you're born with this stuff attached to you. And as a result of it, it is trying to kill you. But God, here's the good news, God didn't leave it there. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 6.23. That is truly dynamic, incredible news But it didn't just start with our movement. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we're living in rebellion, God sent Christ to die for us. Romans 5, 8. Let that sink in. While we were shaking our fist at God, God broke through our fist to come near to us. So I ask the question. In fact, people throughout history have gone, well, then how do you become a Christian? Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you declare with your mouth, so you express something, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It's simple. You say it and you mean it. Now, where am I going with this? I'm glad that, I'm glad that you asked that question. Because of this, Christians throughout the history of the world, once they get a hold of the idea that I don't earn my salvation, it's a free gift from God, I have to declare it with my mouth, I have to believe it in my heart, the next question Christians began to ask is, does it then matter what I do? Can I do anything that I choose to do? Does my behavior have any connection with any repercussion that would come after this? In fact, some Christians go, you know what, why don't I, if, if God's grace is so magnificent and if in my sinfulness, God's amazing grace is demonstrated by his forgiveness of my sin, I could show how even more amazing his grace is by sinning even more. Now that sounds kind of illogical, but for the last 2,000 years, Christians have asked that question. Can I just do whatever I want to do and then just at the end of it go, sorry God, and because of this, isn't he faithful to forgive me every time I ask for his forgiveness? And that is the overarching context of Romans 6. So if you're in Romans 6, here's what we're going to discover. Paul answers the question clear as a bell. Romans 6, 1 through 12, what shall we say, Paul says? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Why is Paul asking that question? Because people in Rome are asking that question. Somebody in Rome, in the church in Rome, is like, hey, Paul, here's a question, just out of curiosity. Shouldn't we sin more so that grace can increase more? And what is Paul's answer? By no means. And then 15 verses later, right in the middle of the chapter, he brings it around again in a slightly different way. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law? Because we're no longer under the law, but under grace? And what's he say again? By no means. And so in our time tonight, I want to explore three kind of questions about a believer's relationship to habitual sin. Now that's not that 
You're going, wait, 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 aren't we talking about worldview? Aren't we talking about worldview? Aren't we talking about, yes, we're talking about worldview. We're going to get to the question about worldview. But in order to get to a philosophical question, we got to get real concrete. And this is concrete stuff that is going to explain the worldview part. So here you go. Three key questions about a believer's relationship to habitual sin. If you like to take notes, there are three very simple questions. Why not? Why shouldn't we? How not? Like, how do we not do it? And then now what? What do we do going forward? Okay, those are the three questions that are going to basically form their outline for the discussion tonight. Here's question number one. Why not? Why shouldn't we just keep on sinning as much as we want to? And here's, what, here's how Paul answers it. This is starting in verse 2. We are those, by the way, as I read this, just count how many times death and dying or dead is mentioned, okay? We are those who have died to sin how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with who has died and has been set free from sin. And so Paul uses an example. He talks about baptism. And uh, I know that here at the gathering, this is a mixture. Some of you have no church background. Some of you call crossings home. Some of you are part of another like church or faith tradition. The way we do baptism at crossing, if you have seen it, is you get into water and we pretty much celebrate baptism the way that it's been, it was done in the early church. People got into some body water, a lake, a river, some sort of big tub. They got in and as they got in, somebody would ask them some questions and then in baptism, the person would be immersed in the water. Now, you catch the visual reference? We don't always explain this. In fact, we almost never explain the visual implication of baptism by immersion. But when the person is upright, they get laid in the water. And what do you suppose that's signifying? Their death. You're dying to yourself. You're, you're entering the grave with Christ. The old you is perishing in the ground. That's the symbol. I mean, sure, it's a symbol of washing. Yeah, that's good. But truly, the, like, the significance of the baptism by immersion is you are dying. And then there's this moment that the person comes out, unless they're really sinful, in which case you hold them under until the bubbles stop. Okay, And then just at the last, you bring them out, and then you do a double dunk if they're really a bad person. I'm just totally kidding. Some of you are like, really? Do they do that? only at the Saturday service. <laughs> so the person comes out to new life. They were dead and now they're coming out to new life. And what, what Paul is saying is, it's like when Jesus was crucified, then he was laid into a grave and then he was resurrected and he came out. We are we die with him on the cross. We, we, our death is in the, in the tomb, but we are raised to new life in Christ. And so the question is, why shouldn't we keep on sinning? Because that's that part's dead. And we have a new identity in Christ. We have an identity in Christ. Our, we have a newness because of him. So why not? New identity. But, but, but how do we resist the habit of, of sin? How, how, 
how not to keep on living in that condition. And here's what Paul says, verse 8. He says, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If you highlight things in your Bible, highlight live, underline live. And then in verse 11, in the same way, count. Again, if you highlight things or underline things, underline that word count. In the same way, we count ourselves. You count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So how do you not live? Well, there's, there's two key words in all of that, and the key words are live and count, if you haven't figured that out. So we live for Christ daily, and we count ourselves alive to God. And now there's a living for Christ that's future, heaven, but that's not what Paul's getting at. He's saying today. So imagine, how do you live, how do you live with Christ as an ever-present part of your daily life? Imagine a, a, the alarm clock goes off, you, you swing your uh, feet off the bed, and they touch ground. And the minute you touch that ground, you say, God, thank you for the day. Thank you for a good night's sleep. Help me to serve you well today. And as you, um, as you go out and you grab your cup of coffee or cup of tea or hot chocolate or whatever beverage that you start your day with, you, um, you fire up your Bible app, the U version, or you you know, grab a, a paper Bible, whatever is your deal, and you read a little section. Maybe it's a long section, maybe it's a short section, but as you read a little section of God's Word, and as you, as you enjoy your morning breakfast, you also dine on words from God. And you say, God, what would you have, what message would you have for me here? I don't want it to just be cold words on a piece of paper. I don't want it to just be lifeless. I want this to give me life. So Lord, do something with this. God, speak to me through your word. Help me apply it to my life. And then um, as, uh, as you commute to work, you know, as you're um, trying to find the right radio station, you redeem the time, and maybe you put something in there. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's a podcast of a message. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's a good book. Maybe it's worship music. And instead of um, driving to work, listening to sports talk radio or political talk radio or, you know, the newest Drake song, you, you, you just have God on the commute with you. This is, oh, by the way, awesome if you, like, carpool someone, make them listen to the music, too. Super fun. And at work, um, at work, it might be kind of weird, like, if you just work at, like, a normal place, just, you know, in a staff meeting Say, hey, let's all start with prayer. That might get funny looks and it might not be appropriate, but nothing's stopping you from eyes wide open as you walk into that meeting and go, Lord, give me wisdom today. Just under your breath, quietly to yourself. Lord, as I enter this conversation, as I have this sales encounter, as I uh, try to manage these people, as I try to interact with my boss, God, just let me honor you. That's what it means to take God with you daily is you come home at night and there's an array of options in front of you to entertain you, whether it's to hang out with friends or go to some uh, place or watch something on TV. You just go, God, whatever choice I make, just let it please you. Help, help it like, bring something good in my life. That's what it means to live daily for Christ. It's not magic. It's not hard. It takes a little intentionality, but it's totally doable. That's not heavy lifting. That's not CrossFit right there. That's not running a marathon for Jesus. That's just, just making life happen. And then he, he, he says, um, you know, count, count yourself dead to sin and, uh, and alive 
alive to Christ. And the word count there is, um, if any of you are like accountants, uh, that's the word. It's a business term. That word in Greek, it had connotations for business. It was like the person that was running the books. You have to count. You have to put thought into it. Years ago, 20 years ago, um, there was a, a fad of bread makers. I don't think they still make them, God willing. Uh, they made bread. They, they, you could go to the store and buy a $2 loaf of bread, or for $200, you could buy a bread maker and $7 worth of ingredients, you could make a $2 loaf of bread. And uh, so when my wife graduated from college, uh, we, her mother gave us a bread maker, and, and my wife is a gourmet. I mean, she makes amazing stuff. It's probably why I ended up with diabetes. I'm just kidding. You can't get it that way. Not my kind, but that's another story. But uh, she, um, she, uh, she made a loaf of bread, and it was fantastic. And because I wasn't diabetic at the time, I think I ate the whole loaf by myself with a tub of butter. It was so good. It was so good. Anyhow, so, um, so uh, then I thought to myself, I'm an educated man. There's an instruction book. I can make a loaf of bread. And so I put all the ingredients. I followed it to the T. I put the thing in. I pushed the button. And those bread makers, it takes seven hours to make the bread or some crazy thing like that. And at the end of all that waiting and anticipation, I open up the lid. And it's like a little glob of dough at the bottom, hard as a rock. I had to like chisel it out of the bottom. And I said in frustration to my wife, your bread maker is broken. And my wife, my wife says, well, did you le- read the instructions? And because I was newly married at the time, I'm like, yes, I read the instructions because I was newly married. Now, after 22 years, I'd be like, probably not. But I was more antagonistic in my youth and, uh, and insistent. And so I said, I read it. And so just to prove it, I cleaned the whole pan out. I made a second loaf identical to my first loaf. And so this time, Karen pulled the thing out, and she tasted it. And she says, wow, that's pretty salty. How much salt did you put in there? I said, what the instructions called for, two tablespoons. Now, any of you who bake know that yeast and salt, they're not good friends. They're enemies, mortal enemies. And if you put too much salt in, it kills the yeast, which means bread stays compact and tastes like salt. And so my wife suspected that I had put too much salt, and I said, the instructions called for two tablespoons. It says it right here. Look, two teaspoons. And I don't know how magically the instructions shifted from table to tea, but they did. Because I swear it was tablespoons and somehow magically became teaspoons. And if you want good bread, you have to count things like that out. You have to be intentional. You have to be thoughtful. You can't be willy or nilly. You can't just sort of like throw things in and hope it works. You've got to like follow certain instructions or it just won't work. And that's the word Paul's using there. He's saying if you want to actually see a change in your behavior in your life, if you don't want the old person to own you anymore and you want to live a God-honoring life so that there's a new you that has a new view of the world around you, what that means is you have to count. In other words, you have to be intentional. You have to put thought into it. You have to be considerate of it. And this is important because a lot of us A lot of us will put more consideration and thought into our evening activities than we will into our spiritual lives. Am I right? Many of us will put more thought and consideration into our career plans than we will into a life with God plan. We'll put more thought into consideration into hobbies than we will into our relationship with God. And what Paul's saying is this, flip that, put incredible thought, consideration, in into your 
relationship with Christ and you're going to bear some differences in your life. There's going to be some fruit from that. And so how, how not to live in the habit of the brokenness of sin? We'll live daily with God. Count yourselves alive to God. Be intentional. That's question two. Question three, now what? Now what do we do with it? Does God really expect me to change? And, and the answer is He does. And he uses a metaphor. This is in Romans 6, uh, starting with verse 19. He uses a metaphor that's really politically incorrect in our culture today. So I just warn you up front, he uses a, a word and a language that many of us would just, we just cringe at. And he says this, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves, there's the word, it's an ugly word, as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so, so now... Offer yourself, and this is where it gets kind of weird. Now offer yourself as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. And I kind of wish he wouldn't use that word there. I mean, I'm totally cool with him calling the old thing slavery. I don't like, I don't kind of like Paul talking about being a slave to righteousness. I, that seems like a little bit of a bridge too far. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Here's the irony, is that when you were a slave to sin, you were free from the ability to do Really great things. What benefit did you reap from at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And critics of Christianity, they grab verses like that and they say, see, all God wants is drones who aren't thoughtful. They don't put thought into anything. They just sort of follow along. They just are slaves to God. Who wants to be a slave to God? And to, to, to see it that way is to completely miss the point. Paul explains why he's using this term. The first reason he explains that he's using the metaphor of slavery is that it was a metaphor that they would understand. Everybody in Rome would have understood the term slavery. It wouldn't have been a big deal to them. It wouldn't have been politically incorrect to them. It would represent a third to about 40% of the city of Rome. That's what historians guesstimate. That three or four out of ten people in the city of Rome were owned by other people in the city of Rome. Wouldn't that blow your mind? In fact, um, Seneca, who is a Roman philosopher, statesman, writing about the same time the Apostle Paul wrote, he tells of this uh, little anecdote where the Roman Senate met and a senator suggested that slaves have to wear a uniform and immediately they dropped the discussion because they all realized, uh, like immediately, that if all the slaves wore a uniform, they realized that they were massive in number and might rebel if they could associate with one another based upon a uniform. So they were like, no, let's not do that. And so slavery was a metaphor that the people understood. The second reason that Paul uses slavery is it illustrates that a slave serves a master. A slave serves a master. If you're a slave, you're master to something. What Paul says is, you're master, you're master with sin. And you thought it was freedom, but it wasn't. It was actually desecrating you. I mean, you think about it. If you make a slave of your own physical impulses of whatever you want to do and you go, look, I want to experience true freedom. I don't want religion telling me what to do. I don't want um, any, any sort of structures telling me what to do. I want to decide what's good for me. What is at the end of all of that? It's usually a mess. If people are honest, it's usually a mess. People go, look, I'm going to live for me and my impulses and what seems right to me. Usually there are tattered relationships all over the place. Usually there is financial disaster all over the place. 
Usually there's a pursuit of happiness, but it's so elusive. Oftentimes fear and worry rule them. And they go, I'm finally free. But what they can't see is the invisible shackles that tether them to their problems. And so Paul says, here's, here's the incredible ultimate irony. If you give up your fake freedom, which you think is freedom, but it's not freedom at all, and become slave to God, you exchange a perceived freedom, which is actually bondage for real freedom. And that real freedom is found in slavery to God. That's a weird concept. Paul Actemeyer, who's one of the great kind of um, Bible in, um, uh, interpreters of uh, the 20th century, Paul Actemeyer, he says this, As creatures, we are not our own lords. We will either be enslaved or God's enemies, under sin or as his friends, in the new relationship Christ opens for us. Get that? We will either be enslaved as God's enemies, under sin or as his friends, in a new relationship that Christ opens for us. It's very counterintuitive. And then Paul uses slavery. He uses the illustration really, really strangely because the key word there isn't slavery, it's offer. That's the word of emphasis. As a slave, Paul says, you can offer yourself. You look back at verse 19, just as you used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, now offer yourself as slaves to righteousness. You see, most slaves... In, in the time of Paul, they were conquered people. They, they were, they were uh, the Roman Empire would go into an area, they'd beat them, and they'd go, now you, we own you, and, and now we move you over here, and you're just going to be slaves over here. And then their kids were slaves, and that's how it worked. But there were some people in the Roman Empire that said, you know what, slavery is almost like a, just a, it's a way of um, having my needs taken care of. And there's a family over there and they're very successful and they're now hiring slaves and I can go choose to be a slave to them and they'll take care of me. They'll give me shelter. Sure, I won't have freedom of movement, but I'm like right now free to die because I can't even provide for myself. So if I go and choose to offer myself as a slave to them, maybe they'll hire me on and yeah, I'll be their slave, but I'll have shelter and I'll have food and I might have a future with them even though I'll be owned by them. And there were people that went and enslaved themselves willingly. That was part of the culture at the time. And so Paul's picking up on that one. He's saying you could choose. You get to choose who your master is, but somebody, get be clear, someone is going to be a master. But when we offer ourselves to God, He is a good master intent on making us whole. Imagine this scenario. You get yourself a job. Officially, uh, it's, a, it's your first official job. You're fresh out of college. It's it like is the start embarking upon a career. And at first, it's like everything you dreamed it would be. You tell all your friends, this is everything I dreamed it would be. And within like a month, you realize, I think my boss is a psycho. And after like a second month, you're like, no, my boss really is a psycho. Like, won't leave me alone, calls me all hours, expects me to answer the phone at 2 a.m. Thanksgiving rolls around and the boss expects you to actually work on a project on Thanksgiving Day. Worse yet, worse, you have to work on Black Friday. Despicable, Right? All of the, you, you have no free time. You have no, you, the boss controls every aspect of your life. And finally, a friend pulls you aside and said, look, free country, why don't you quit and get a new job? And so you do. You quit the old boss who is just taking credit for your work and underappreciating you and asking unrealistic expectations of you. And so you go work and you get a job with a new boss. And the new boss is great, like reasonable, like no more psychotic than a normal boss ever is, right? 
You know, everyone's a little bit crazy, right? And so you go and you get a job with a new boss, and, and you love it. You love the job. You love your coworkers. Everything's good. And all of a sudden, Friday night, 8 o'clock, you get a phone call. Who is it? It's your old boss. The old boss goes, I expect you to be in the office on Saturday. Do you go back to the old boss under the bondage and the mistreatment of the old boss? What do you do? You'd be like, lose my phone number, never call me again, or I'm calling the cops. Leave me alone. Because you have a new boss. And so what Paul says is, you know, when you, you, you choose, you are free to choose your master. And only one of them will provide freedom. But the other one provides bondage. And when God's your master, he gives you the power to change. I like how the 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody put it. He says, Christ has set us free, not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Not just the penalty, but the power. Okay. So what does all this have to do with worldview, right? Because we're supposed to be thinking about our worldview. Well, our worldview is driven by our view of ourselves, by our habits, by our interactions with the world. So if we are living perpetually in the habit of sinfulness, guess what? Our worldview is going to reflect that. But if, if the old person, the old way of operating, the old way of thinking, the old habits are laid in the grave and a new spirit is arisen in you and you become a new person with a new identity and a new resolve to resist the sin that so easily entangles, you become a new person. And the new person, well, the new person carries on a brand new way of operating, a brand new way of thinking. And when you do that, you have an entirely different world of the view, uh, a view of the world. You see, in every one of our lives, there is a throne for all of us. It's not just me. Every single one of us, if you could imagine, there's some sort of a throne in your life. You're born with it. You don't have to ask for it. It's there. And when you're born, um, this is a big chair, so I'm going to use the stool. Pardon me. Okay, when you're born, guess who's on the throne? Be kind of awkward if the throne broke right now, wouldn't it? Be kind of funny. You're on the throne. When you're born, it's you. You come out and you're like, feed me, change me, take care of me, hold me, swaddle me. I don't even know what's wrong with me, but I'm going to make your life miserable. As a baby comes out, right? That's how a baby is. Everyone's like, oh, a baby's so sweet. I've had three. No, they're not. They get sweeter with age. But a baby uh, is just naturally like self-focused. First words of most kids is mine. And that's just how it is. And I, that's, you know what, I, I don't expect any different. When my children were six months old, I didn't go, you selfish little sinner, you need to repent, come to Christ, and quit this right now. Actually, I did, but it didn't do any good because they couldn't get it because when you're six months... But there comes a stage of your life where you make a cognitive decision, am I going to stay on the throne? Am I going to be the Lord of my life? Am I, I going to be the king of my life? Of all the decisions going to be about me or is it going to be Jesus? Am I going to let the Lord be the Lord of my life? Here's what most of us do. I'll move over. Jesus, got a nice warm spot for you right here. But Jesus won't. I mean, that, that, I mean that's a, one of the crazy. We, we are willing to share and Jesus will not. 
It's not because he's selfish. It's because he's knowledgeable. He knows it will not work that way because we start out like on Sunday going, Lord, I will share with you. In fact, here, I'm just going to go one cheek on the chair right here. You get the rest. But by Friday, we're like, Lord, are you comfortable? He won't do it. There's only one solution. And that's when we have to get off the throne of our own life and we have to give it to him. We say, Lord, I recognize I have my own way of operating. But there's only, there, there's only going to be one person on the throne in Lord Jesus, by your grace, your mercy, through your power of your Holy Spirit, it will be you. Lord, take the throne. Every one of us. It's a choice we make. Now this um, hopefully makes sense in this regard. There's a lot of people that come to Christ, they make a decision, sometimes they get baptized, and they stay spiritual infants. And they act like it. You know, sometimes it's us, sometimes it's someone we know. And they act like spiritual babies because they're spiritual babies. But, but to grow up spiritually, there has to come a point where you're like, you know what, I, I relinquish control, Lord. I give you the power to take it over. So what does that look like? You have to be the editor of your own life. About a decade ago, I had the privilege of, of writing a book. Um, don't worry, it's not a, a bestseller, nor one I recommend to you, okay? It's, but it was still a book. And I worked with an editor. And um, I sent a Microsoft Word document to my editor, and then he would send me a document, my document back with edits. And I don't know if you've ever worked with Microsoft Editor, but I felt like he was insulting me constantly. There'd be a red portion, and it would be all the stuff that he suggested that should be removed. And it felt like everything I'd written. And then there was a blue section, and it was all the suggestions for what to add. And it felt like it was even more um, significant than all the stuff that I'd written. In fact, when I got the first document back, my editor, his name's Chad, I said, Chad, do you regret agreeing to publish my book? He's like, no, no, this is, this is the process of editing. And I didn't know that, but the relationship of an editor in a, in a written piece is to suggest take these things out, add these things. Except there's no Chad in your life. You, you are the editor of your life. With the help of the Holy Spirit in your life, there's a point where you have to say, Lord, help me figure out what needs to go. Help me figure out what needs to come. It's not either or, it's both. And so my question for you is what needs to go? And there's certain categories for you to think about because you're never going to develop a proper worldview without playing editor in your life. You're going to have to decide what goes and what stays. A couple years ago, my wife and I were traveling. She was with me, and, um, and uh, we were flipping around. Uh, we were in a hotel, just two of us were flipping around, and they had free HBO. And um, I'd never seen Game of Thrones, and every, all my, a lot of my friends were like, oh, Game of Thrones, you guys see Game of Thrones. So I clicked it on. I clicked it just in time to watch um, somebody with no clothing on. And, and, so, and my wife and I were like, maybe we'll check out what's on the, like, uh, uh, the Home Improvement Network instead. And so we watched that instead, but... You know, if, if what, what you fill your mind with is stuff like that, if that's, what's in, if, if that's what you invite into your brain, you're, you're probably going to struggle to develop a Christian worldview. 
It amazes me, uh, uh, the Me Too movement. I'm, I'm thrilled that finally our culture is saying, let's figure out how we can respect women in the workplace. It's good. That's a conversation that's ironically very late, very late. And yet, um, in a culture that objectifies humans, men and women, constantly and pushes sexuality constantly, then we expect people to behave properly. I think, well, maybe we need some editing in our lives. And so there's, there's categories, what you fill your mind with, what movies you see, what shows you binge watch. Do you ever ask the Holy Spirit, God, do you think this is good for me? Do you think this is helpful for me? Do you think this takes me to a good place? Does this help me develop a proper attitude and view of you, God? But it's not just what you take away. Because at that point, I feel like an old fundamentalist. I should like get a wood pulpit and pound it. But there's also a place in your life where you have to ask, God, what needs to come in my life? Is it um, daily time with you and your word if I don't do that already? If it's, is, it, is it something that needs to add? Is it Christian community? We have an, the young adult Sunday school class here is amazing. Uh, the, we have so many small groups, amazing. Maybe there's a biblical community piece that's missing for you, a personal devotional piece that's missing for you, a commitment to the Lord piece that's missing for you, but something's missing in your life, and you've got to add it. You've got to play the editor of your life. You want to develop a proper Christian worldview? It's going to come, it's going to come when, when you say, God, it's yours. All of it my entertainment, my free time, my career path, all of it, it's yours. Heavenly Father, these are challenging talks. I feel challenged by them. In fact, Lord, I know that if, if um, we are able to approach a book like Romans, a chapter like Romans 6, and not feel challenged, then we must be reading it wrong. And so, Lord, I thank you for this group of people because they're intense. They come here on a Tuesday night, they fellowship together. They sing their hearts out to you. They sit and listen to your word talk. God, I pray. You, I know for each and every individual here, you had a message for them and you found them where they were at and you continue to speak in them. So speak through them. Lord, help them yield their hearts to you. Walk in steadfast spirit with you. And for my brothers and sisters here that um, they're just a spiritually adrift, help them find a true anchor in you, Lord Jesus. We give you thanks that you are abundantly patient. You're a good father who calls us into closeness with you. And we give you thanks for all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.